Here we go, no lyrics. Yeah, it's season finale time. This episode will contain spoilers for the 2019 film Parasite. It will also contain explicit language. Welcome to another episode of Franchises and Filmogs. Today is the season finale of season two. It is the last film in Bong Joon-ho's filmography. And today we're talking about Parasite, which is from 2019. And I am joined once again uh, the first recurring guest ever uh, by my friend Steven. How are you doing, Steven? Good. I just couldn't get enough of Bong Joon-ho, so here I am. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Uh, so as, as I usually do to kind of uh, warm up the guest and warm up the audience, I have a couple questions for you. Uh, when was the last time that you watched this film? Uh... Maybe fully a month ago. I did recently for this kind of do a, a skim, a skim viewing. So it's okay. like, I've watched it like two and a half times now. I guess we're going to call the skim viewing a half view. Nice, nice. I rewatched it yesterday, so it was pretty fresh on my mind. But I have watched it like three times since it came out, I realized. So oh, I definitely have been watching it a lot. Um also, you just got this on Criterion, right? I did, yeah. Do you know like any of the, the cool features on that? I mean, the cover, I like the cover just because it's the uh, Morse code written out to which it shows like the cover of the movie that way, breaks it up. The features are like the black and white version, and then it just has like a lot of essays and stuff and interviews yeah. and commentaries. I haven't I do. delved into those yet, though. Yeah, I do really want to get the uh, the Criterion Collection copy, mainly because of the black and white, because I feel like that is super interesting. So you'll have to report back to me when you watch it in black and white and let me know how that goes. Yeah, I did see some. I did, like, watch some of the scenes in black and white, and they were cool. Yeah. Sweet. That's... Uh... That's pretty much all the questions I got this time. Have you uh, done anything cool since we last talked to you last week that you would like to share? <laughs> um, no. That's all right. Cool. Uh, Stephen lives a boring life. Exactly. Um, That's but why I'm on so, the so do we all. <laughs> cool. Uh, I guess we can just get right into it. Then I haven't done anything cool either, so um, not much to share. So let's start off with a very, very brief plot summary uh, for this film. And by very brief, I mean this is going to be like two sentences of a plot summary that is missing a lot of detail. And then Steven's going to judge me on it, uh, probably poorly because of the the detail that will be missing. Uh, But here we go. I'm just going to say this right here. This is the third time I've attempted to do a two-sentence plot summary. Uh, You guys will not hear the rest of those previous cuts, but here we go. A poor family cons their way into being employed by a rich family. That's it. 
That's all I have to say. If you have not seen this film, you should watch this film uh, because it changes drastically from that point on. Uh, but a lot of the topics are based around the rich versus the poor. This movie changes completely at one point and becomes more of a horror film. We'll talk about the genre blending a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's that's all I've got. Steven, do you want to say anything else about the plot for now? I mean, third time's a charm. I think you nailed it. Uh, I do think explaining anything beyond that beginning basic part is makes things difficult and it kind of ruins the magic a bit of the movie exactly yeah so i do i, I want to say this that if you have not seen this film watch this film before listening to this podcast because i want everyone that has not seen this film to watch this film it is a masterpiece we'll talk more about our ratings on it later uh, but I really don't want you to listen to this podcast if you have not watched it, because we are going to spoil a lot. And this is not a film I've seen before. It's like no other film I've seen before. Uh, let's go ahead and get into some facts about the film. Uh, one of the big facts that I found really interesting was that the Parks, which is the wealthy family, the Park family, uh, their house was a set that was made from scratch. And Bong Joon-ho decided to have these lines in the house to divide the Parks and the Kims whenever they're in the house. The Kim family is the poorer family, uh, the lower class family. So I found that super interesting because that really plays into the theme of the film and the motifs that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, what else here? We've also got Bong Joon-ho making nods toward Hitchcock. He uses stairs a lot in this film, which seems to be a nod toward Hitchcock films. Uh, so that's interesting. This film was shot in 77 days, which feels like a very short time to make this film. Uh, it is a long time, I guess, when you think about it, but it seems short to make a film that is this good. And this is the fourth film featuring one of our favorites, Kang Ho Song, uh, that Bong Joon-ho did. Uh, so yeah, frequent collaborator with Bong Joon-ho. Uh, do you have any, uh, Facts you want to add or say anything about those facts? Yeah, I mean, uh, the house stuff, Hose built from scratch, it sounds very, like, Kubrick-y. I know he was a stickler oh, yeah. for locations. I think it was, I forgot which movie it was, but I think he spent, like, months trying to find the house with, like, the right door for a certain scene. I don't know, Kubrick was crazy. Um I do so. I didn't. I don't know if this is a fact, but I I did notice that the architect that is mentioned in the movie for the house is named Nam Goom, which is the name of a uh, Sangho uh, character in Snowpiercer. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that too. After watching uh, rewatching Snowpiercer and then watching this one, I noticed that, and I was like wondering if that was intentional. I guess it probably was, but yeah, a little Easter egg maybe. Yeah. Uh, this film also is a big award winner, and we're not going to name every award that it won and was nominated for, but two of the biggest, or a couple of the biggest, I guess. Uh, we've got the Palme d'Or for the Cannes Film Festival, and this was the first Korean film to ever win that, so that's huge. And this one, Best Picture and Best Directing, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Foreign Film at the Oscars, so or the Academy Awards. So very successful film. Yeah, that's that's pretty much all I've got in terms of facts. Uh, so we can just go ahead and get started talking about 
the film, uh, one of the big things I really wanted to talk about was all of the callbacks to previous Bong Joon-ho films, since we've seen them all now. Um, Or if you're listening to this, maybe you've seen them all, but there are a lot of callbacks. And one of the big ones that I noticed was there's this scene early on and it goes all the way back to Bong Joon-ho's first film. And it's a scene where they're fumigating the lower class area where, where they all live. And Kang Ho Song's character, he's the father in the poorer family, the uh, Kim family. He tells them to leave the windows open because he wants them to use the fumigation in their house, which I think is extremely dangerous. But we also saw fumigation in Barking Dogs Never Bite. So I found that super interesting uh, that he went all the way back to his first film. And I don't know if it was intentional. I'm guessing it was because it's a very cool uh, scene to see in this like scenery of, of cloudy images. Have, have you seen um, Barking Dogs Never Bite, Stephen? I have not. So that is interesting to hear. You should definitely watch that. Uh, I did watch Okja uh, for the last episode, which you've never seen, but I still think Barking Dogs Never Bite is better than Okja. Uh, I think it was my second least favorite of Bong Joon-ho's films, uh, but... It's better than Okja, and it is a solid debut film. So I would definitely recommend that you check that out. And there are some callbacks that you'll notice if you watch all of them. Y'all have to get around to that someday. Yeah. That film also has a very different, like, jazzy soundtrack. And another thing I noticed in this film is Bong Joon-ho is using a very, like, classical, more Hollywood soundtrack that I think really plays well. Um what what did you think about the soundtrack yourself? I enjoyed it. I mean, there's a lot of classical pieces in it, Yeah, I believe. And I do think the OST itself kind of keeps with that vibe. And I think it works, especially in particular, like there's like the montage scene where they're yeah. trying to overthrow the housekeeper and that's a classical piece. And it just makes it flow and bounce so heavenly through all the scenes and and i do it fits with like the beautiful house and the affluent family the wealthy area and it's just like pairing the classical with that i enjoy it it's it definitely works too as kind of a clash to some of the later stuff that happens in the movie yeah absolutely um i definitely enjoy the soundtrack and i think that montage scene is one of the best scenes in all of bong Jin ho's career um, that ends in a very comedic moment, but also is about a lady having an allergic reaction. So it's it's more of that awkward, dark humor that just works so well for Bong Joon-ho. So I really enjoyed that scene. Um, I, we I can really talk like more about that. Kong Ho's face at the end of yeah. that scene. <laughs> he like yeah, brings he makes up this the, face. the fake bloody tissue and he's like, oh, look at this. It's so good. Yeah, it's like it's tailored to become a meme really um it has that like one shot just makes you laugh Mm -hmm. uh so i i really like that uh this film is also beautifully shot and unlike a lot of his other films there's not a lot of areas that are shot in this film like it's not a lot of countryside shots there's a couple but a lot of it just takes place in this one house that was apparently just made for 
this film specifically. So I really enjoyed that. And I think that he uses these angles really well. We talked about lines that divide the Park and Kim family. I wish I knew that before I rewatched this film so I could kind of notice that more. But overall, I, I really enjoy just the scenery. And even in close quarters, uh, it feels like there's wide angles still being used that just work. They just work for him, I guess. Did you want to say anything about how the film is shot as well, Steven? Yeah, I I do think <clears throat> it's beautifully done, first of all, because the house is beautiful. All the scenes are composed perfectly. And I do like the contrast. I think when the Kims are in their, you know, like basement apartment, the shots feel a lot more claustrophobic. Then when they're in, like, the park's home, I feel like the camera starts moving a lot more freely. It's, like, more open. The shots are wider, which I think is a nice contrast. And then in the intense scenes, especially at the end, it switches to kind of, like, a handheld camera, but it's done properly. It's it's done enough to increase, like, the tension and the anxiety of a scene. Yeah, yeah, I that's a really good point that there's a lot of shots that are like in an underground bunker that I guess was in this film it was created to prevent uh being killed in an attack from North Korea. Um so those shots definitely feel way more claustrophobic and we don't even get those shots until pretty late in the film uh where this film completely just takes a turn and becomes a full-on horror film at least to me it feels like a horror film uh so i find that really interesting um i think we'll take a break right here and then we're going to talk more about the genre blending and the risks and anxiety that this family goes through welcome back to franchises and filmogs we're talking about parasite my friend steven um, the, the next thing I kind of wanted to discuss in this next section here is risks and anxiety. This family goes to great risk to become wealthy. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about rich versus poor, but they take these great risks by basically hiding in jobs that they should not have or are not qualified for. I guess they're okay with having them because they do fine in the jobs. Uh, but it makes for a really tense tone throughout the film. I found myself uh, clenching up and just very anxious throughout the film. There's one scene specifically that everything turns. And to me, that's when the old, uh, older or previous uh, caretaker for the house comes back and rings the doorbell and all of the Kim family, which is the family that took her job and the driver's job and all of the other family jobs. Um, she comes back and finds that they're all in the house uh, just hanging out while uh, the Park family, which is the rich family, is out camping for their son's birthday. Uh, and that's really where the anxiety starts for me. Is that is that where you feel it too, Stephen? Or is there an earlier point? Yeah, Um. I definitely think that particular scene is, and kind of that whole like sequ- next like twenty minutes, is a masterclass in tension. The way it transitions to them joking, having fun to, 
the doorbell ringing and everything changes. I, I think it's very, I think it's really difficult to create a feeling of anxiety and tension in a movie. At least for me, I don't feel that like physical, emotional sensation all that often. I think like in terms of masters of it, like Tarantino is incredible. Like, especially like, you know, scenes like the table scene in Django or the bar scene in Inglorious Bastards. It's kind of on that level for me in that scene. And I think there's other parts of like anxiety in the movie where it's just a lot of lying, them lying and scheming in front of these people. I think it's just stuff that would normally make you kind of just feel nervous in your seat, you know, like squirm a little bit that kind of stuff. Yeah. I had a, when this first came out, I had a friend that, so everyone I talked to was like, this is a great film. It's a masterpiece. And I asked one of my friends specifically, and they said they hated it because it made them so anxious. So I found that really interesting. That's the only person to date that I've talked to that said they hated this film. And I think she also said it was great but she hated it because it made her extremely uncomfortable. Okay. I Uh, love feeling, I love when like a movie can make me feel something that like physical. Yeah, definitely. And it's like, it's very subtle. Like this is not a straight horror film. Uh, Toward the end, it, I guess there's one character in it that kind of makes it more of a horror film. Uh, But it's it's definitely not billed as a horror film to start out and it doesn't ever hit that point until very late uh so i think that's that's really well done um i think we should also talk about how it devolves uh into the the ending of this film uh because it starts off mainly as a comedy it, this is all my opinion. I think people are going to watch this film and feel differently every time they watch it. I feel like I've rewatched it and felt differently about certain scenes. But to me, it starts off as like a drama comedy, uh, dramedy, if you will. Uh, and then it goes into a more anxious tone once that doorbell rings and the old caretaker is coming back. And she's coming back to check on her husband who is left in this bunker downstairs uh and that's where it shifts directly into more of a horror film because this guy has basically been stuck in the basement he almost seems like a monster at this point uh which is what being stuck in a basement for i i don't remember how long he was there but it was many years with barely any food and only being able to sneak out to take food uh and that's where it becomes more of a horror film and then it turns into like a short action film and then it becomes more of a drama again and i don't know it just constantly bends it's still somewhat humorous throughout but dark humor um what do you think about the tone like throughout this movie are there certain points that you feel it it shifts directly to one uh one genre or another yeah i definitely think the beginning of the movie is very funny like most of bong Joon ho's work it starts off with a lot of humor and his humor always seems to translate surprisingly well across languages. I think he's got a good knack for that. And I do think there comes a point like there did come a point when I started to watch when I was watching where I noticed the humor wasn't there anymore. It was just kind of something I was like, Oh, you know, I haven't laughed at something in a while. 
And then that's kind of about when, you know, the doorbell rings and it does it does shift to a more thriller horror moment when you discover the person under the floor. And then it's kind of a more thriller element when they're hiding from the Park family, like under the table and stuff like that. And then it does kind of the flooding is jumping into like a action scene. But I do think like the majority of the movie kind of stays in that drama realm with the black comedy elements. So it all kind of starts to go downhill toward the end of this film when the guy living in the basement comes up and decides to go on a killing spree uh, because he's pretty pissed off at the Kim family, the poor family, uh, for keeping him in the basement and basically killing his wife as well. Uh, so that's that's kind of how this all devolves into a more horror film uh, because you just see the stabbing kind of going on at a garden party that's meant to be the son's birthday party. Uh, I thought that this ending was very shocking. When I originally saw trailers for this film, I did not know what to think at all. And this is not what I expected, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I guess enjoyed might not be the best word for that, uh, but I think it was definitely an artistic choice to have this film uh, changed so much throughout. But what what did you think about the ending, Stephen? Yeah, I found it shocking as well. I didn't expect it to turn into kind of a slasher film light at the end. And it was especially surprising when uh, Kang Ho stabbed Mr. Park. And I thought that was an interesting part of the movie. I think there's like a lot of discussion to be had around that. I think there's like a lot of buildup in terms of the actions and emotions that finally push him over the edge. I think one thing I kind of noticed recently is Mr. Park talks a lot, a lot about saying like he likes workers that don't cross the line. And he mentions that multiple times and how, you know, Kim never crosses the line, stuff like that. But I, I do think Mr. Park himself kind of crosses the line there at the end when you're asking a worker you know he's not young or spry and he's a driver to dress up as a native american at the party and play around like that i think i feel like to me like that's crossing a line as like employer to employee and i feel like that like lack of respect for mr park and then I, I guess the the lack of respect he showed the guy, you know, the crazy guy who was stabbed now with like the sausage skewer yeah. when he, he, when he came over and like just was reacting to the smell and like, they do mention, you know, like the guy who just stabbed Kim's daughter has a lot of respect for Mr. Park. He's the one that like praises him every time he comes home. He sends him the Morse code signals about how great he is. And stuff, and I and I guess it's like he focused so much on the reaction he has was just like covering his nose with the smell, and it was that once again that like I guess reminder for him, and it's one of the big like motifs yeah. of the movie is this like this the smell of poverty, the the something he can't change, like the status that he cannot remove from himself, no matter what he does, unless he gets out of like the current situation they're stuck in. And I do think that moment was also 
an interesting, I guess, parallel to the name of the movie, where it was kind of like the parasite killing its host. It's like it was done with that host, and it, and it's time to kill it and move on. Like the Kims are more of a a bad parasite, while the Moon and her husband were maybe a more benevolent parasite. <laughs> yeah, inspected their hosts. I was reading uh, something about the the Park family also being uh, parasitic, I guess, uh, yeah. because they always require like a companion to be with them. Uh, I guess kind of their influence on this other family is a little bit more parasitic. Uh, and it, it shows that upper class doesn't necessarily make you more moral. Lower class doesn't make you more moral. Um so th- that's definitely interesting to me. Uh, yeah, when I think, you, I was going to say, I think the parks also kind of have that parasitic tendency with how easily they fired the previous workers. And it, oh, and it was yeah, just kind true. of an example of that. Both classes in this movie exploit each other, really. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely do. Uh, when you were talking about like the crossing the line uh, quote, that Mr. Park says, uh, he says that like, uh, Mr. Kim never crosses the line as a driver. I didn't fully understand what he means. I guess maybe like, is he talking about intruding on their lives or? I think he just means being like a very traditional, respectful worker, you know, like he shows up, does his job. He doesn't say anything inflammatory or crazy. Doesn't, say any of his opinions too much you know only like the right amount of his opinions yeah like i guess he's comparing him also to the other driver that he thinks uh slept with some uh i guess a prostitute in the back of of his own car uh but i guess that crosses the line uh but i think he was talking about like more subtle things right than than that with mr kim so uh yeah that's that's interesting i think that kicks off our uh next little conversation here that i wanted or next topic i wanted to talk about and that's this the rich versus poor uh it's very much a common motif in bong joon ho's films and i think this is the biggest portrayal of the class divide uh, in any of his films, or at least it's more straightforward and less subtle because they're constantly talking about their status. Uh, and you have this wealthy family that has hired this much poorer family. Uh, at the very beginning of the film, the Kim family is given this rock and it's a very metaphoric throughout the film for this divide. Uh, what do you have to say about the rock? Yeah, so it's like, I think it's called the Scholar Stone. And I do like how when they get it immediately, Kiwu is like, it's so metaphorical. <laughs> it's like right yeah, away stating yeah, it's true. important. I do think, um, it. I so it's like, to me, because they mentioned that it bring, it's supposed to bring wealth to the family that has it. And I think for the majority of the movie, it's, the motif is kind of that it it stands for Kiwu's like greed, ambition, his aspirations, because it shows up at the beginning when they have nothing, and then it shows up again when they're like kind of starting out the con, and it's starting to work, and then it shows up again kind of at the during the flood when they're about to lose it all, 
When that's like the one thing the sun saves. Yeah, and then at the very end, I think it's like he's going downstairs to the basement with the rock to kill the guy that's trapped down there because he's the only one who can reveal like their con and ruin their plans. And I think that's like, it's that's then the moment of like all of his aspirations and everything like coming down and crashing down on him. Yeah. As he gets bludgeoned with it. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. So I guess we could, we'll talk a little more about the end here as well. Uh, but the sun gets clobbered by the rock basically. And, uh, I don't know how he, he survives this at all, uh, but he ends up going through a brain surgery, I guess. And he, after that, has a big disability, but he seems to relearn things as time goes on. It's unclear how long exactly time has gone on for. But the father stabbed uh, the the Kim father stabbed the Park father because the park father made fun of their smell again uh and he got pissed so he stabbed him and then the kim father has to go hide so he hides in the now vacant basement uh and the rest of the film there's like i think it's like 10 to 20 minutes of the son just recovering and trying to find his father and they use morse code again in the end uh but another point where we do see that rock is at the very end, he places it in a river, I think. I don't know. Do you remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah, think that so might think... be like him giving up like those yeah. ambitions, maybe. Yeah, so the end is pretty ambiguous as well uh, because we don't really know if the son finds the dad or not. Like in the film, the son does find the dad uh, and figures out how to read Morse code. But at the very end as well, there's a scene of him like writing a letter, I think, that shows he hasn't found the dad yet and is still trying to gain wealth to, or he found the dad, but he has not been able to acquire the house in order to save his dad from the basement, basically, and let him out from the basement. Uh, So I really like the ending because it's pretty open to interpretation. Um and the rock makes it the full way through the movie until the like very end when it's laid in a Creek that shows him, I guess, just giving up as Steven said, uh, on his idea of trying to gain master wealth. I don't know. I guess this is kind of confusing me now because when he puts the rock in, does that mean he does not care as much about money anymore because he still needs the money to get the house. I have a more, I guess, not happy view of the ending in the traditional sense i i feel like we have the dream sequence where he's like i'm gonna go straight i'm gonna earn the money you know normally go up by my bootstraps (laughs) i earn the Mm -hmm. wealth buy it and for you but i i think when that dream sequence ends we kind of get back to reality and it reminds me of the scene earlier, you know, where the father says, like, the only, you know, really, like, the only good plan is no plan at all. And that whole scene was him kind of describing a plan. And I think, to me, I'm reminded of that scene. It's like, well, plans never work. And he, you know, has that experience now where, you know, plans, like, the plan before didn't work. And so I guess, like, what we saw was just a dream, and it's just that. And then he put the rock away, and he's like, 
that's not going to happen. I think he's just giving up any kind of like greed to get there since considering what it brought last time he tried. So your um, interpretation is that he is basically not able to save his father by buying the house. Yeah, Uh, I I think so. There's also a final song during the credits that was written by Bong Joon-ho and it was sung by the actor that plays Ki-woo and it apparently translates to just him kind of working and doing manual labor and Bong Joon-ho said it was kind of like an extension of that final montage and the song's just about him like doing hard manual labor but it was apparently like an alternate title for like the song was like 546 or something because that's like the number of years it would take him to do manual labor and earn the amount of wealth to buy that house. Wow, so, that is blowing my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like a bonus credit song. And yeah, I, I think it's just, you know, it's like really realistically with his credentials, I guess, and maybe the state of what it's like to be in the lower class in Korea, there isn't a lot of job opportunities and it's really going to be manual labor. And it would just take, far too long to earn it earn the money to free his father so i mean in terms of like that kind of dream sequence i think there's no way that's gonna happen i do think like maybe you know if we're gonna speak like logically about the situation maybe after like five years and there isn't much news on the murder anymore and uh kong ho's uh character has maybe lost some weight after being underground and grown a beard, <laughs> he could probably like resurface and no one would recognize him. Yeah, how are they shaving underground? That's a great question. I mean, the uh, other guy's <laughs> wife probably brought him or probably yeah. gave him herself, honestly. Well, I'm guessing she spent a lot of time down there with him, but uh, I think Kong, Kong Ho's character can just uh, grow a beard, lose some weight, <laughs> come out five <laughs> years later. No one's going to know. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I guess the the ending could have like a lot of different interpretations because the first question I have is how this kid survived being hit in the head with a giant rock twice. It wasn't only once. The guy like threw it down on his head again. And I'm pretty sure no one could survive that. Uh, so I have questions about whether he's really alive at all, uh, which you might have kind of answered there uh do you so you think he does survive i think he's alive we don't feel like where it hits him in the head maybe it was like i think like there's a lot of blood people can get a lot of blood it was a lot of blood (laughs) but uh he did get like a meat he got pretty quick medical attention because his uh girlfriend like picked him up and like carried him out yeah yeah that's true uh, she also is like, I'm surprised that she can lift him, but <laughs> um, well. yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of heroes and villains throughout this whole film. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much all I have to talk about Parasite. Are there any specific scenes that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I have some more, I guess, comments on kind of the upper class theme of the movie or the battle between the lower and upper class. I do like the difference between 
like, first of all, I do think like this is a much more nuanced take on the theme compared to Snowpiercer. I think there's a lot more detail. There's a lot more symbolism. And this is like, this is a smart movie. It's a lot smarter than me. Since obviously I could be <laughs> wrong on a lot of these things. And it's, it's really definitely, hard to it's compare. less less action um, yeah. than Snowpiercer 2. So more drama. And I find this movie hard to compare to other movies. Like it doesn't feel like any other movie that I, I have seen. But I do like that in like Snowpiercer, it's the story is told linearly, like very literally, it's linear with like the horizontal structure. And then like Parasite, I think, has like the very vertical visualization of the class struggle, which I, mm-hmm. I just think is cool between the two movies that it's just like two different visual takes on the same theme. Cause like in Parasite, you have the Kim's basement apartment. So that's underground. Then you have the Park Hilltop home. And then you got uh, the one crazy guy, Da Hai, is, uh, uh, or wait, sorry, Da Hai is uh, his girlfriend upstairs room for tutoring. And I think there's like a big deal, like when he first climbs the stairs to that room when he gets the job where it like pauses on him and then he walks up. And then it got, it has Moon and her husband's basement cellar. So it's like, I think it's like there's a lot of like below and above, like up and down going on. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I guess that also uh, might be explained by the, the lines that are supposedly in the house. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely be thinking about that next time I watch this film uh, with the divides that are apparently set in the house. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of to expand more on like that part of like it being nuanced, more nuanced than Snowpiercer, I think it's Snowpiercer. And I, I mentioned it in like the previous podcast is Snowpiercer's like upper class is very black and white. It's like they clearly like cause harm. They're there to make the lives of the lower class miserable. Well, I think the parks throughout the movie don't actively commit harm. They're more just ignorant. And I do think Bong Joon-ho does a good job of making the movie more about like seeking to educate rather than just preach a certain message. Because even... Yeah. Because you can go back to like the, the big... A big thing to talk about is like the rain scene where the parks are like wow look how beautiful the you know the rainstorm is meanwhile you know the people down in the uh basement cellar areas like the half basements of the lower class are getting flooded and their lives are being destroyed but even when the kims were up at like the hilltop house they weren't minding the rain when it was going on or the storm it's like once they were up there it didn't bother them at all so i i do think it's it's not so much as like these guys are the bad guys these are guys are the villains it just kind of paints a picture of like ignorance that uh divides classes yeah i mean they don't they don't notice it at all um that could still i guess go back kind of to what the the dad was saying about how they don't cross the line uh what uh the park father was saying how the driver doesn't cross the line because he's not sharing about his personal life uh and mr park doesn't seem to really care about his personal life like he they never ask them like how is your home where do you live no they don't even know where they live i think that's a big Uh, thing about mr park with the crossing the line is is like he doesn't want to hear about their personal life and like if you want to state your own opinions it better like agree (laughs) with mr park's opinion yeah so it is kind of just like he's not doing anything to really like 
he's not trying, I guess, to insult or harm uh, Mr. Kim, but he is doing it through his kind of, I guess, his ignorance and his lack of empathy. Yeah, well, he doesn't even notice that Mr. Kim notices every time that they're, like, making weird gestures about the smell of him, so... Yeah, he, he just seems extremely ignorant about everything going on around him that's not involved in his own life. So, which I th- I think that's definitely something a lot of money can do to people. Um, it just they're not intentionally trying to be mean. I don't think Mister Park ever expected to be stabbed by Mister Kim uh, just for kind of holding his nose. Uh, but yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Do you have any more? I guess about the movie itself. I think that's, that's pretty much all I have. Um, again, I would watch this film if you have not seen it. I hope you didn't listen to this whole podcast without watching the film. Uh, but I want to make that last plea to, to watch this film. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that's, I do have a question for you though. Yeah. Uh, I just, cause this was the first, internet or foreign movie to win best picture i was curious what your thoughts on are on other foreign movies that should have won best picture i have a few listed but i'll let you go first okay i have a couple that were not nominated and then i have a couple that were nominated and didn't win Mm. uh so number one in my the first season of this podcast where i watched all horror films uh i watched good night mommy which is terrifying. I don't love it myself, but I think it is Oscar worthy. I don't know if you've seen that film. I have not. Uh, But that's a great one. And then we'll go to a completely other spectrum here. And the movie Your Name, which is animated. Uh, I'm trying to remember the director's name, but he is uh, being hailed as the new Miyazaki, basically. Uh, That is a great film. And I don't think you'll see anime films really being nominated for Oscars, but I think it's an Oscar worthy film. Makoto. I've also got. Yeah. Yeah. I gave that a five out of five. It's a really good film. Great soundtrack. uh, Great visuals. Uh, I think it it could be Oscar worthy. I would love for that to just win best picture straight up. I mean, I liked La La Land, La La Land slightly more, but I would have loved your name to just take home best picture. Yeah, and then I guess I'll leave with two that were nominated but didn't win. I think that Roma deserved Best Picture. It lost to Green Book. Green Book is an okay film. There's a lot of controversy about it right now. I'm not against it winning necessarily. I don't. I can't bring up the controversy right now because I don't remember it all off the top of my head. But I think Roma was a better movie. And then Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon... I think should have won an Oscar and it was beaten by Gladiator. The first time I watched Gladiator, I thought it was great. Uh, the newest time I watched Gladiator, I thought it was actually complete garbage. So <laughs> that's that's a hot take, but that's what I'll give you. What, what have you got? <laughs> yeah, and to comment on yours, I haven't seen Gladiator, but I do like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And I haven't seen Roma yet, which I really should since I love Quaron, So You should watch, yeah, you should watch Roma. <laughs> That's great. So what I have is I have first one is Akiru, which is a Akira Kurosawa movie. And nineteen fifty two. What won that year for Best Picture was the greatest show on earth. 
which I'll admit I haven't seen, but it doesn't seem like it has the greatest <laughs> ratings on IMDb. <laughs> and Ikiru is like, it's still relevant today. Like it's messages. It's beautiful. It's sad. It's amazing. I can't see how. I'd have a hard time imagining there being a better movie that year. And then I put Pan's Labyrinth. And Ooh. it what it did get nominated for Best Foreign Film. It didn't win. I think it could have won Best Picture. What won that year is The Departed, which is a solid movie. But I think Pan's Labyrinth is just a lot more imaginative and original. And I definitely... You know, having seen both, I easily prefer Pan's Labyrinth. And then, yeah, and then Come and See, 1985, is uh, Elam Klimov is from a Belarusian director, and it's about a kid during World War II, during, like, Germany's invasion of Belarusia. And it is maybe one of the most harrowing, like, films i've ever seen it's horrible it's just incredibly made like the atrocities in the movie just feel it's it's like it's an incredible like experience to watch and one that year is out of africa which i've never heard of and i mean obviously i'm criticizing a movie i've never seen but i do think it speaks a lot to like how many people are talking about like out of africa today (laughs) Compared to, like, I think the impact that, like, Come and See had on cinema. And then the last thing I put was Scenes from a Marriage. And it's Ingmar Bergman, and, like, it was, like, a miniseries, which is definitely better than the movie. But there's a movie version of Scenes from a Marriage. And that year, though, Ingmar Bergman did get nominated for Best Picture for Cries and Whispers, which was surprising to see. So I think it could have had, honestly, two nominations that year and maybe could have won for any of them. I haven't seen Cries and Whispers yet. Interesting. I definitely need to watch all of those. I've only seen Pan's Labyrinth out of that uh, group, uh, but I definitely need to rewatch Pan's Labyrinth and watch all of those. One thing I've not been great at is watching classic films. I don't know why they're usually better than the films I'm watching today, <laughs> but I've, I've heard come and see is great. And I think it's also on like every advertisement I see for the criterion collection. Uh, so definitely going to Lord check that me. out. It's definitely yeah. a movie you can put into the category of just an experience. It's like, there's really nothing like it the way it's filmed and, I think it's famous for like it's one of its like final montages, but it's yeah, it's brutal. It's not for the faint of heart at all, and it's like it's a lot of people can say that about movies, and you watch the movie, and it's like yeah, it wasn't that bad. Come and see, is that bad? Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely check that one out. Uh, I guess we'll close this off by giving our rating and overall opinion of Parasite. So I'm going to, I'll go ahead and go first. I'm going to just throw it out there that this was my favorite film of 2019. It is probably one of my favorite films of all time that I've ever seen. And I would give this a solid five out of five because it's like nothing I've ever seen before. And it is brilliant and it is art. What do you think? Yeah. I, I also gave it five out of five. I think it's, 
a masterpiece. I think Wang Juno has two masterpieces really with Memories of Murder and Parasite. And it is like, I definitely would put it amongst the best movies I've ever seen. I can't compare it to anything else I've seen. There's so much detail in the movie. It's so meticulously crafted. There's plenty of things I'm sure I've missed or I don't understand. There's literally a million video essays on the movie and (laughs) that doesn't necessarily speak to its quality but I think it's a good sign just like the sheer number of like amount of content that people have created about this movie is pretty incredible and I love to see all of the love that a foreign film is getting yeah absolutely and it won many Oscars it was nominated for many Oscars uh Oscars aren't necessarily a reflection of what should win awards, I guess. Uh, But it says something about this film for sure. Um, I think that's, that's pretty much everything I've got. Was there anything else you wanted to say before we close it off? Uh, no, I mean, just, I think it's just parasites. A good example is why to don't be scared away by subtitled movies, watch foreign movies. There's great things out there. Especially like other Korean stuff like Burning 2018. It's a fantastic movie. I haven't seen that yet. That's another movie. It's like I can't really compare it to anything else. And it's super awesome. Have you seen um, An Elephant Sitting Still? I think that's what it's called. No. I don't know what that is. It is like three and a half hours. I watched it with some friends and then we got food after. But it is brilliant. It's a great film. You should check that out i think i'm saying the title right i think it's an elephant sitting still yeah, or standing yeah. still maybe uh but yeah that's a good one uh all right i guess we'll we'll close it off then uh thanks everyone for listening to the season finale this is the season two finale of franchises and film mugs thank you steven uh for joining us today to be a guest host on the show Always uh yeah, and you're you're welcome back whenever. I think um, on Saturday I'll release what's coming next because uh, I, I don't know yet. We'll see. <laughs> but on Saturday I'm going to release what's coming next, uh, and you guys can check that out there. Uh, have a good rest of your week. Peace. There it is. That's the season finale uh, for season two of franchises and filmogs i hope you enjoyed it let me know uh what directors you want to hear next what franchises we're moving on to a franchise next and i'll talk more about that on saturday on saturday i'm going to release a reflection show along with what's coming next so you can stay tuned for that will probably be out uh saturday uh morning or midday we'll see uh but yeah stay tuned for that we've got some exciting films coming up for the next franchise we're going to look at but i had a great time talking with steven about bong joon ho and i definitely encourage you to check out all of his films